Thank you so much for that uh, ministry and music. Isn't it a wonderful thing to be precious in the sight of the God of the universe? I'm so thankful that God, God's love is unconditional and everlasting. You know, last week we were talking about the ministry of Jesus, and we were talking about uh, some of the ways He ministered physically, spiritually, socially, emotionally, and how we need to both be ministered in these same ways and also to minister in these same ways as the church of God here in Dalton. Amen? I believe that if, if God's people are here being fed in these ways, that we'll be able to touch many lives and impact many for the kingdom of God. So today I just want to begin a, a study with you on how we can grow spiritually, how we can be ministered to by God spiritually. Now, there are simple answers and there are involved answers. I like simple answers. And I think ultimately we can boil the, the, uh, the whole plan of salvation just down to a few words, a few thoughts. But sometimes it's good for us to sort of look at it from different perspectives, right? For us to learn from different angles. And for some of us, the, the uh, re- rehearsing of the gospel is old news. For others, it may be new news, but for none of us, should it grow old or boring, right? Because we love to tell the story of Jesus and His love. Today, we're going to look at how to grow spiritually. I want to start by sharing a story that might help us illustrate our point. Some of you may have heard of these before. They're called International Reply Coupons. They began in the early 1900s. The idea was you could buy a, uh, a, a coupon that could be used in any of the countries that were part of the United Postal Union. I don't know how many countries it was. The U.S. was one of them. And you could buy this coupon. It could be sent anywhere in the world, any one of those countries. They could go to the post office. They could buy stamps that was good for international postage, and they could reply to your letter or offer or whatever it was just by cashing in this universal reply coupon. There was a man by the name of Carlo Pietro Giovanni. And Carlo was a, a, an Italian immigrant. And uh, Carlo uh, looked at this coupon and he thought, you know what? Back in my native Italy, I can buy these coupons cheaper than I could buy the stamps in U.S. currency here. So all I need to do is write a letter to my friends back in, in Italy and have them send them some money, have them buy a whole bunch of coupons and have them send them over to me. I'll go to the post office and cash them in for stamps and make money. And this was Carlo's uh, get-rich-quick scheme, you might say. He actually borrowed some money and sent them over to family members and had them send the coupons back to him. He began then to go, well, when he went to the post office and tried to cash them in, he found out there was a lot of red tape. He had to go through. It wasn't quite so easy just to walk away with the cash, but nonetheless, he began to go to his friends and promise them that if they would loan him their money, he would give them 50% return on their investment in 90 days. Now, that sounds like a pretty good return, right? 50% investment in 90 days. And so people began investing, and sure enough, he would give them money back. And uh, people began mortgaging their homes to invest with 
Carlo. They began to uh, uh, empty their life savings to invest with Carlo. A Boston financial writer wrote an opinion that it couldn't be possible. There's no way he could be getting 50% return on this legally. Carlo sued the writer for libel and won a $500,000 settlement. This was 1920. The Boston Post ran a favorable article about Carlo's company and the 50% return, and just below the Post article was an advertisement for a bank offering 5% return on savings accounts. So people saw the contrast. Here's this this, uh, company offering 50% in 90 days and a 5% annual interest rate, which is better. The next morning at 6 a.m., thousands of Bostonians were lined up outside of Carlo's office wanting to give him their money. In fact, on that one day, this was in 1920, on one day he took in $3 million from the individuals there in Boston. The story spread like wildfire across the country and people could not get their money to Carlo fast enough. The problem was Carlo wasn't buying international reply coupons. In fact, one, one astute investor began to calculate, and he calculated that for Carlo to have invested this much money in IRCs, there would have to be in circulation in all the member countries something like 160 million investment, uh, uh, international reply coupons. In actuality, there were only 27,000 in the whole world that had been printed. Something didn't add up. Something wasn't right. And so when the fraud was exposed and the company collapsed, investors lost $20 million in 1920 dollars, and six banks collapsed. Carlo's full name, your last name, you may be best familiar with, Carlo Pietro Giovanni Guglielmo Tobaldo Ponzi. I'm glad they just call it Ponzi schemes, right? Ponzi scheme became synonymous with financial schemes that robbed Peter to pay Paul. You know, the people had genuine interest, right? A genuine desire to grow their finances, to grow their financial investment. What was it? What was it that they didn't know that allowed them to be taken by this Ponzi scheme? What was it that if they had known would have prevented such a catastrophe for many of them. Well, I believe that if they had known two things, if they had known where their money really was, and if they had known the character of the man they trusted, they would have been spared from this type of a loss, don't you think? If they had known where, this, where their money really was and where, who the man they were trusting really was, they could have been spared of this, of this disaster. So today I just want to, I want to look with you at how we can know better. How we can, if we want to grow spiritually, right? How we can use knowledge. What knowledge is necessary for us to also grow spiritually as well? I think that we need to know two things as well spiritually today. I think that we need to know who we really are. And also, we need to know who Jesus really is. So let's pray together as we begin our study. Father in heaven, thank you so much for promising to be here by your Spirit. We want to grow spiritually. 
We want to invest in eternity. We want to become the spiritual men and women that you call us to be. So, Father, today I just want to pray that you'll help us as we study, that your presence might be here to guide our thoughts, that he might be our teacher today. And we thank you in his name. Amen. The first thing I believe we need to know is we need to know ourselves better. Now, why is this? Some people might say, well, I know myself pretty well, right? Um, others of us, uh, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe if you've been married for a long time, your spouse knows you pretty well, right? And it could almost finish your sentences. Uh, maybe uh, some of you young people know that your parents know you pretty well, right? Maybe sometimes our parents know us better than we wish they knew them, uh, they knew us. Um, but the, the, the point that I'm making this morning is that we need to know ourselves, right? To know ourselves. Well, what does it mean to know ourselves? Why do we need to know ourselves? Here is the, the text that uh, begins to make us ponder this, this truth. The Bible says in Jeremiah 17, verse 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Now, some of us are going to say, well, I know who I am. I know how my Christian life is. I know I'm not a Christian. Are there people like that? Are there people that just straight up know they're not spiritually growing? They're not doing well spiritually? Is that true? Yes, there are people who are in that condition. And they are very aware of it. They're very honest about it. Now, being honest about it doesn't save us, does it? But at least they're not hypocrites, amen? And sometimes we at, least, we at least appreciate and value honesty. There are those who will tell me, and I've had many tell me, look, I don't, I'm not a Christian. Some people have told me, well, I tried Christianity once and it didn't work. Some people have told me, well, I just don't want to be a Christian. Whatever the reason is, there are some people who know that they aren't Christians. But there's a problem, and the problem is that the heart of man is just desperately wicked. And the devil doesn't care. The devil doesn't care whether he makes us choose not to be a Christian and say, I'm not a Christian. Or he allows us to think we're Christians when we're really not Christians. Are you following me? It doesn't matter whether we say we're not a Christian or we say we are a Christian if we're not Christ's. We're lost just the same. Amen? And the problem is that too often, because our heart is naturally wicked, naturally deceitful, desperately wicked, we don't really know ourselves, our own spiritual condition, the way we are deep down inside. The Bible shares with us a parable, and Jesus speaks directly to this issue in Matthew chapter. 21. If you'll turn with me there in Matthew chapter 21, and we're going to look at this parable here together this morning briefly. Matthew chapter 21, you are familiar with the teachings of Jesus and his parables, and this one I'm sure you've read before, but we're going to take another look at it from the angle of knowing ourselves. Now, Jesus here is speaking to the religious leaders, right? And he's actually being confronted by the chief priests and the rulers of the temple. Now, who were they? The chief priests, that's the pastors, right? That's the, the spiritual religious leaders and the rulers of the temple. These are like the church administrators, if you please, right, of, of Jesus' time. These are the people that's, that symbolized religion in the minds of people. This was organized religion in the minds of the Jews. He was being challenged. He was being questioned. 
and uh, he was being, his authority was being questioned as well. And they were, they were sort of being a little less than honest, if you read this passage beforehand, the, the context, verses 24 through 27 or so. But notice with me, we'll begin reading in verse 28. Jesus is speaking now, addressing these same religious leaders who have just, they've just pretty much avoided telling the truth when it wasn't convenient. And he says to them, but what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not, right? That was defiance. That was open aggression against dad. That was shaking his fist at father and saying, I'm not going to do your work. You can get someone else to do your work. I'm not doing it. I'm not going. I will not. But later, the Bible says, Jesus said, afterward he regretted it and went. The King James says, afterward he repented and went. He had a change of heart, right? He had a change of attitude, a change of spirit. And so the, the first son, he says, I will not go. But later his heart changes and he realizes that his father loves him. He realizes that he ought to do what his father has asked him to do. And he goes and he does it. And the second son, verse 30, he came to the second and said, likewise, go work today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, yes, sir, right? I go, sir. That was the response of the second son. The second said, son said, of course, sir, anything for you. Yes, father, I'll go. But what did he do? The Bible says he went not. He did not go. And Jesus now poses the question to these religious teachers, which of the two sons did the will of the Father? Which one? Now, impulsively, of course, they're put on the spot and they're, they don't want to be embarrassed by the, uh, you know, the people around them listening to them not know what to say, so they impulsively they say the first, the first, the one who was openly aggressive, the one who was openly defiant but who had a heart change and went, right? He said the first. And Jesus said to them, Assuredly I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. Now, Sometimes we read the words of Scripture and we fail to recognize how much of a revolutionary Jesus was. Jesus turned the entire mindset of the religious world upside down on its ear. There was, no, there was nothing too sacred for Jesus if it wasn't in the Word of God, right? And these people who are sitting there looking at the religious leaders as if they were, they were the ones to be shooed into heaven. I mean, they were, they were going to heaven. For, if anyone was going to, going to heaven, the religious leaders were going to heaven, right? They listened to Jesus say these words, and I can just imagine the collective jaw drop. As Jesus says, assuredly, surely, for sure, I'm telling you today, the publicans and the harlots are going to get to heaven before you do. Can you imagine the shock? What? These are the people who go to church every week. These are the people that pay their, ten, their tithe of mint and anise and cumin. You know, they count out those seeds. One, two, three, four, five, six, nine for us. One for God. One, two, three, four. I mean, these people were religious people, right? They were spiritual people. They were good people. They were church people. And Jesus said in, in, in modern parlance, Jesus says essentially, listen, the mafia bosses and the prostitutes are going to get to heaven before you do. 
What? Can you imagine it? A religious teacher saying something like this? Why would Jesus say that? I propose to you this morning, friends, that Jesus said that because it's true. Right? Not that it's wrong to be in church. Amen? I'm not saying we shouldn't be in church. Not that it's wrong to be good people. Not that it's wrong to do all the good things that the religious people of his day do did or the people of religious people of this day do. Those aren't wrong things. But by themselves they can't save us. And because the heart of man is desperately wicked, sometimes coming to church every, or the synagogue every Saturday morning, coming and counting out their tithe and anise and cumin seeds and giving 10% to the Lord, as good as those things were, sometimes there's this human temptation for us to begin to trust in some of those things to make us good and not realize that we're sinners every day in need of the grace of Jesus. Every day. The advantage... The advantage that the publicans and the harlots had over the churchgoers was they knew themselves. They knew their condition. They knew they were lost, right? You see, in order for us to be saved, first of all, it's not that we have to become mafia bosses and prostitutes. That's not the point at all. We have to know our condition. That's the first step. Some people come to me and they said, I, you know, you, you told me if, if I would read the Bible, I would, I, would, uh, you know, I, would, I would grow spiritually, but the more I read the Bible, the worse I feel about myself. I say, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. That's the first step. The more we see ourselves, the more we're not going to like in ourselves. And the more we realize our condition the more we'll be able to go to a Savior. We'll get to that in just a minute. And so the danger is of being a good person, but not a saved person. A good person, but not a converted person. I tell you, friends, I'd rather be lost knowing I was lost than lost saved in the church. And Jesus here is saying, wake up. There's a danger, there's risk to being a good person, but not a converted person. Amen? The risk is we'll forget who we really are and not knowing that we're only saved by the grace of Jesus, we won't depend on His mercy, on His power, on His strength every day. And in the end, didn't matter we went to church every week if we didn't make Him our Savior from sin. Our tithing won't save us. Our church going won't save us. All the good things we, won't, we do won't save us. It's only Jesus that can save us. So the parable of the two sons teaches us the danger of being a good person. Christ Object Lessons, page 200, says the following. There is more hope for publicans and sinners. Page 280. There is more hope for publicans and sinners than for those who know the Word of God but refuse to obey it. Why is that? The reason is because our hearts become hardened. Amen? When we know the Word of God, when we think we are making, or when we're making a profession of obeying the Word of God, but in actuality we aren't, we can even become deceived ourselves into thinking that everything is okay when it really is not. And so, 
David prays this prayer in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Why would King David pray this prayer? Because he knew the principle that Jesus tried to share in the parable of the two sons. He knew that it was possible for him to have a heart that was blinded to his own sin, blinded to his own weakness. He knew that he could be a good person without being a converted person. In fact, if David had always prayed this prayer, I would propose to you, we wouldn't have the chapter in the Bible about David and Bathsheba, right? We wouldn't have the, the, the David falling into sin because he would have known ahead of time he was weak and he needed to depend upon Jesus. He would have known his weakness. He would have known where he needed to make safeguards and keep out of any wicked way or any evil thought. David here is inviting God to search his heart. And I would propose to you Beloved today, that this is a prayer that we all would do well to pray. Ask God to search our hearts. Now, when we ask God to search our hearts, we're giving Him permission to show us, right? We're giving Him access to our hearts. We're saying, Lord, show me myself so that I can know who I am, so that I can depend upon you. There's something we can do in this process as well, and I'd like for you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul joins in this course. Paul joins in this course and shares the same concept with us in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5. He's writing to the Corinthians. Corinth being a, an evil city, a city that was a, a metropolis surrounded by vice, corruption, paganism and all of the, the evil that uh, in the pagan world existed. He's writing to the church in Corinth, and he says here in verse 5, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. What does that mean? Does that mean make sure your names are on the church books? Is that what he's talking about, friends? Is that No. He's talking about a spiritual examination, right? He's talking about examining our hearts. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or the King James says, prove yourselves. Do you not know yourself that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless you are disqualified. There, are no, there is no middle ground. You are, either, you are either in the faith or you're not in the faith. Either Jesus Christ is abiding in your heart by faith, or, as Paul says, you are disqualified. You are eliminated. You're, 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 um, you don't meet the test. It's not how good we are on the outside. It's not the good things we might do or even the things we might say. It's whether or not Jesus is in our hearts. If Jesus is in you, friends, you're in the faith. Amen? He will take care of the rest. If we're surrendered to Jesus, He will take care of the rest. And so Paul, he invites us, examine yourself, he says. Test yourself, prove yourself, whether you're in the faith. The only way we can do that is by spending time in the Word of God, by spending time asking God through His Word to show us ourselves, asking the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts. This is something, it's a daily work. It's a daily work. Oh, but I know, I know how easy it is for us to get busy. Right? 
It's easy for us to get busy doing good things. You know, even in ministry, even as pastors, we can get so busy doing good things, we neglect the most important thing, and that is our personal walk with Jesus. In fact, I believe that there's a reason sometimes why we get so busy. This might be thought-provoking for, for some of us. Satan, who? Satan is inventing everything that he can possibly devise in order to keep men so thoroughly occupied, thoroughly occupied, so that they can, they shall have no time to consider the question, how is it with my soul? What does the devil have to do in order to ensure that we're going to be lost? All he has to do is keep us so busy, so occupied, we never stop to think, am I growing spiritually? How am I doing? How is it with my soul? And I'm not, you know, I I have nothing against technology. I have nothing against the world we live in today. But friends, the reality is, if, if Satan has been busy, he's been really busy the last 150 years or so, right? Because all kinds of things have been invented, entertainment to devices to gadgets to keep us 100% occupied. Like 30, no, I think it was like 60% of smartphone users I read are on their phone before they get out of bed. From the time we wake up to the time we drift off, we're occupied. You understand what I'm saying? And I'm not against any of those things. All I'm saying is, if we want to grow spiritually, we need time with Jesus. We need time to ask ourselves the question, how is it with my soul? We need time to spend in the Word of God so the Holy Spirit can speak to us, so that that prayer can be answered. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Show me if there's any wicked way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. We need time. And if we would want to grow spiritually, my friends, if we want to know ourselves, we need to prioritize. I appreciated, Ben, what you shared this morning about the Lord's calf. Too often it's the Lord's calf that dies, right? When we're busy. But we want to grow spiritually, amen? If we want to, we need time. Time with the Lord. Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 15, one of my favorite verses. Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15. When we spend time, we will begin to see ourselves, and sometimes that picture will not be too flattering. But there's good news. There's good news in the Word of God. Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 15 begins with the accolades of the God of heaven. For thus saith the high and lofty one. The what kind of one? high and lofty one, who inhabits eternity, I dwell in a high and holy place. Now, if we just stopped, if we just stopped reading the verse there, we would have one picture of God. We'd have the picture of God who is a preeminent God, a God who is high and holy and lifted up and way out of reach of mankind, right? If we just stopped reading there. But thankfully, the verse continues. And what does it say? With, I dwell in a high and holy place, Who else is there? With him who has a what? 
contrite and humble spirit, to revive the, the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. You see, my friends, the good news is that as we begin to see ourselves, as we see ourselves who, for who we really are, as we see our needs, we recognize that we are sinners. Today, I need the grace of God. I need the, the, the mercy of God. When we see ourselves for who we really are, we have good news. And that is that God dwells with those who see their need. Amen? Those who have a contrite and humble heart, who don't think of themselves as more than they are, who don't think that they can earn their way into heaven's favor, who realize they have nothing that will merit them the grace of God. And it's only the love of Jesus that brings them hope for salvation, for eternity. I dwell with Him who is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble, to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Matthew chapter 11, another verse that I love, gives me hope when I feel discouraged, when I realize that Jesus gives me a personal call. He gives you a personal call. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Jesus here gives the, the great invitation. He says, Come unto me, all you who are holy and have everything put together. Is that what he says? What does he say? Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. Desire of Ages, page 300. I read the following. It says, The Lord can do nothing. How much? The Lord can do nothing toward the recovery of man until convinced of his own weakness and stripped of all self-sufficiency, he yields himself to the control of God. Then he can receive the gift that God is waiting to bestow. From the soul that feels his need, nothing is withheld. He has unrestricted access to him in whom all fullness dwells. Isn't that wonderful? It's the same we read in Isaiah 57. The Lord dwells in a high and holy place with those who recognize their need. From the soul that feels his need, nothing is withheld. Oh, friends, don't get discouraged if you see your need. Don't get discouraged if you see your, if you see your sin. Realize your sin may be great but we have a greater Savior. Again, page 329, same book. The weaker and more helpless you know yourself to be, the stronger will you become in His strength. I tell you, friends, if there was a secret to learning to, to grow spiritually, consistently walking in your Christian life, it is to daily, daily know yourself. And the weaker and more helpless you know yourself to be, the stronger you'll become. Why? Because when you know you're weak, you depend on Jesus for strength. And Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. Isn't that amazing? Not in our strengths, not in what we know we can do right, not in all the good things we do. Jesus is glorified when He uses our very weaknesses, transforms them to become our strengths. The weaker and more helpless you know yourself to be, the stronger you'll become in His strength. So as we spend time with Jesus, as we ask God to search our hearts, it doesn't mean we're not growing when we see our faults and our sin. It means we are moving past that first step, and that is to know ourselves. Now, 
This doesn't mean that we should focus on me. It doesn't mean that we should focus on our sins. Because the greater our sins, the greater our need of a Savior. Amen? And our eyes must be on our Savior, who is greater than our need, greater than our unworthiness, and greater than our sin. It is a Savior who wants to make us strong in His strength, and we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. And so the second thing that you and I need to know if we want to grow spiritually is we need to know Jesus better. We need to know ourselves better, and we need to know Jesus better. You know, many of us, our ideas of God are formed by by our childhood upbringing, by the culture we live in, by the society, by the churches. As a, young, as a young child, we begin to have concepts of God. Even the authority figures, the teachers, the, the governments in our lives, they tend to impact and influence our view of what God is like and who God is. I remember one time I was in Siberia, holding an evangelistic series, and many young people were coming out to those meetings. This was not too, far, not too long after the fall of communism, and there, were, there had never been an evangelistic series in this city before, a city of about 60,000 people. There was a small Pentecostal church, a small Adventist church with about a dozen members, and a, I think another church, and then, of course, there was the Orthodox, but never had any Christian group done an evangelistic series. So this was a new thing. And uh, when we came to town, it was, it was very exciting because the, basically the, the university emptied out and they came to our meetings every day. We had a 2 o'clock meeting and a 6 o'clock meeting and the, the theater would be packed with about, I think it was 800 seats, both meetings would be full. And I would get in, in a question box down on the front of the stage, we had a question box. And every day we got about 150 questions put in the question box. And that tells you people are thinking and people are interested, right? And I remember... Um, this, this, um, this young person wrote a question in the question box one day. I decided to be one of those which I would answer. The question was this. Why do you come here and try to force us to believe what you believe? And I thought, force? That's pretty strong language. And when I answered the question, I said, you know, I said, did anyone drag you in here? Everyone I saw came in here on their own two legs, Right? The door's open. If you don't want to be here, you can leave. No one's forcing you to stay here. But this is the thing. I began to recognize it wasn't that, it wasn't that they were coerced to come. It was their view of God, shaped by generations of communism. Under communism, you had to have a particular ideology, Right? And if you didn't match that ideology, you were banished to Siberia. You were put off to the, the, the labor camps. You were executed. What, or you just disappeared, right? And so there was, this, there was this totalitarian view of God that came from the ideology of communism. And their view of who God was and their idea of freedom was totally different than mine. And so I had to back up and say, wait a minute, I think I know what you're trying to say you know what, you don't have to, even if I'm telling you God's truth, you're not forced to accept it. Because God doesn't work that way. God is a God of freedom. This is a, a, a massive paradigm shift for someone who has grown up their whole life thinking if there's a God who rules the universe, then he's got to be worse than Stalin, right? I mean, he just ruled a country. There's a God in the universe, I told them, who is so committed to your freedom, he would die to protect it. In fact, he has died to protect it. 
When mankind fell, he lost freedom, right? We lost our freedom. We were slaves of sin and Satan. That was it. The end of the story. We're, am I telling you the truth? Were we able to do anything else? No. We're slaves. We're, we have no freedom. The cross of Christ, friends, is Jesus stretching out his arms and saying, I want man and woman, I want boys and girls to have a choice as to their destiny. The, it's not the Statue of Liberty, friends. It's the cross of Calvary that is the greatest symbol in human history of human freedom. Jesus died, I told those young people, Jesus died so that you would have the freedom to reject Him. And He loves you whether you do or don't. He loves you just the same. Well, sometimes our, our concepts of God have been so warped that we don't have a clear picture of who God is. And the only way that we can know who God is is by going to the source. Friends, I, I believe in going to church. But you'll find hypocrites in church. Churchgoers don't define God. Amen? God is defined in His Word. If you want to know who God is, you must not just go to church and look at the Christians. You must go to His Word where He can show you for Himself who He is. Don't become discouraged because of your wrong ideas or the wrong ideas that others may give of God. Go to the Word of God yourself and see who He is. 1 John 4 and verse 8 tells us God is love. Desire of Ages, page 21, my favorite commentary on the life of Christ, says this, to know God is to what? If you know who He is, if you come to an understanding of who God is, you will come to love Him. Oh, the devil doesn't want us to see who God is. We're going to close with John chapter 3. Turn with me to John chapter 3, and we're going to see how, very quickly here, John chapter 3, Jesus takes Nicodemus through these two steps. Number one, what do we need to know in order to grow spiritually? We need to know ourselves. Number two, we need to know we need to know Jesus. We need to know Him. John chapter 3. You remember Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night, and Jesus says to him in John chapter 3 and verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And they begin this discussion. Why is this discussion taking place here with Nicodemus and Jesus? Jesus is trying to show Nicodemus his heart, right? It's not good enough that he's just a religious leader. It's not good enough just that he is the one who goes to church every Sabbath and that he does all the good things. That's not enough. He needs to be born again. And so Jesus here, in the very beginning of their interview, Jesus goes right to the first issue, the first matter of knowledge that Nicodemus needs to know. If Nicodemus is going to be saved as a follower of Jesus Christ, he needs to stop trusting in the good that he is or the good that he does, and he needs to start seeing himself for who he truly is, a sinner who needs to be reconverted every day from the inside out. He uses the term born again. Amen? Born again. Unless a man is born again of water and of the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But skipping down in the chapter, we see Jesus introducing to Nicodemus the second bit of knowledge, the second material that we need to know in order to be saved. Jesus said, this is life eternal that they might know thee, right? The only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. And notice with me, in John chapter 3, 
And verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You see, God, Jesus is here trying to shift Nicodemus' focus from himself and the sense of need that has been awakened through their conversation already. He's trying to shift it now to the God of the universe and his character, his character of love, his character of being willing to give all of heaven emptied in one gift. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Oh, in Nicodemus' day, the religious leaders condemned those who weren't like them. They condemned those who might be the, the publicans and the harlots, right? Jesus here is trying to shift the, the, the concept of God away from that formed by the religious leaders to that which is true and real. In verse 17, he says, For God did not send His Son into the world to what? Condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. God is all about our salvation. I want you to know that as we, begin, as we begin studying the Word of God, as we begin seeing our needs, sometimes we're tempted to become con, uh, discouraged when we're convicted of sin. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever seen your need and then felt discouraged? I'll tell you why it happens. It happens very simply this way. The Holy Spirit is trying to prick through our hard shell of a heart, and when it finally gets an opening and we st finally start seeing our need, the devil gets very alarmed. Right? Why would the devil get alarmed? Because there's only two things we need to know in order to be saved, right? We need to know ourselves. We need to know Jesus. And the devil sees we're about to know ourselves. We're about to see that we have a need for something outside of our own righteousness, our own goodness. And you know what the devil does? The devil actually swaps sides. And he starts doing the work of the Holy Spirit. Did you know the devil likes to convict us of sin too? As soon as the devil sees that we're about to get our eyes open, he joins in with the Holy Spirit. Oh, yes, you. The difference is, when the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, the Holy Spirit points us to our Savior. When the devil convicts us of sin, the devil says there's no hope. The devil convicts us of sin to discourage us. Jesus came not into this world to condemn the world, but to save the world. When Jesus works in your heart, it's not to condemn you or me. It's to save us. Amen? And so when the, you're tempted to become discouraged, if you're tempted to think there's no hope for your spiritual growth, you need to recognize it's the devil convicting you of sin, not the Holy Spirit. And just tell the devil, yes, I am a great sinner, but Jesus is a greater Savior. Amen. Jesus is a greater Savior. There's a story I read once of an apartment house that caught fire one night. And up in the fourth floor of this apartment building was a small apartment, a father and three, three, three boys, ages three, five, and seven. And as the building was burning, the father realized they were trapped. The side of the building with the staircase had already been consumed. There was no way down, no way out. Frantically running from, building, from window to window, 
He had nearly given up hope when he realized that the next apartment building over on one side of the building, from one of the bedroom windows, there was a bedroom window in the other building directly opposing it. And it was only four or five feet across. So in an act of desperation, the father kneels on the windowsill of his bedroom and he launches himself across the chasm to the open window of the next building. He was able to grab the next building's windowsill and keep his feet hooked over his windowsill. And then he told his boys, climb over my body. Climb into this window. One by one, his three boys clamored and shakily climbed across the bridge of his body until all three had arrived in safety at the next apartment building. And when the father attempted himself to swing himself into that open window, his strength was already exhausted, and he fell the four stories to his death. The story reminds me of another one who made a bridge out of his body, another one who was willing to give his life to save you and me. Amen? The Bible says, and William, I believe, referred to it today in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Friends, if God was willing to give his son empty heaven in one gift, give the greatest resource of the universe so that you and I can be saved, isn't he going to give us anything else he need, that we need in order to be saved? If we just have an idea of who we are, if we just have an idea of who he is, I believe he will do everything necessary for us to be saved throughout eternity. Amen? Today, I don't know about you, but I want to know myself better, and I want to know Jesus better. Is that your desire? Would you like to join me this week in asking the Lord to show us ourselves and to show us Jesus? Should we pray together? Father in heaven, today we thank you that we serve a God who doesn't care what we look like on the outside, who doesn't care what we've done, a God who loves us unconditionally and eternally. And Lord, help us, even us who are churchgoers, help us to be saved. Help us daily to get to know ourselves better through your Spirit speaking to our hearts through the time we spend in your Word. And help us to get to know our Savior better. To know that the weaker and more helpless we know ourselves to be, the stronger we can become in His strength. Oh Lord, make this, this community of faith, this church, this body of believers, make them strong, growing each day in you, spiritually, that we might be able to reach out and others might join us in that walk. 
which ends in eternity. We pray in the name of the one who was willing to die for us. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.